Okay, Alsada Bacana, welcome. Thank you for coming on. The lead of Eagle Entertainment at Eastern Washington University. Good friend of mine. I'm really excited to have you on. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time coming, but we're finally here. So mm-hmm. we've been talking good. about this for I mean, over a year, right? Yeah, I first like messaged you about it like, gosh, last year before the school year even ended. I was like, give me six months and I'll probably have something to say. No, I'm excited to have you on. I would like to start off just by asking how you got to where you're at. I, I want to hear a little bit of your story, um, if you're comfortable with sharing. It's a long story, but I'll make it short. I was born in West Africa. I was born at Ivory Coast. I was born there because my family was fleeing from war in Liberia. My parents are Liberians, so moved to Ivory Coast, and then we came to the States. And then since being here, we've moved around a lot. The most recent place, or the current place I live, has been Chingney, Washington, Spokane, that type of area. while living here, I started doing track, and that was like my major thing in high school. I was a track girl, and then, you know, I did the state thing. I did the records. I did the all that, all the fancy fancy stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And I got recruited, went to college. Well, started off my college career at UW. That didn't work out, so I went to WSU. That didn't work out, and so I'm back at Eastern, and now I am the lead coordinator for Eagle Entertainment. The year before I was the diversity and outreach coordinator for Eagle Entertainment. So yeah, that's a little bit about my story. Awesome. What made you want to get into entertainment? Um, it was actually my first my freshman year at UW. Um their school entertainment board was putting on a concert and it was like the first concert I think I've ever been to. It was a Smino concert. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And also like their lead or something like that. I thought he was pretty cute. So I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe if I, if I start working with them, maybe, I don't know, maybe something might happen, but it didn't work out like that. And Mm -hmm. here I am three years later, four years later, the lead of the, my school's entertainment board thing. So, and you just got back from Liberia. What was that experience like coming back? How long has it been? Gosh, we went, it was supposed to be for a month, but we ended up staying like a month and another week. So it was like a month and a half, really. And it was really eye-opening because I I hadn't been there since I was like a baby. And there's so many people that knew me and I didn't know any of them. So that was pretty cool. But I really, it was a lot of like just watching, learning, listening, listening, um, to my aunts tell story how they interacted kind of their thoughts about relationships God 
just a lot of like learning mm -hmm. and also it made me like think more critically about structures and systems in America and also how that's affected like Liberia as well because that is a colony of the states I just learned a lot like what what would you say opened your eyes like in regards to like systems definitely in the education system um I say the education in the U.S. education system in the U.S. kind of suck but it's even worse over there because they're trying to copy U.S. education system, but mm. they're set so far back. It's more reminiscent of slavery times, even more so than it is in the U.S. Mm. Like, for instance, like most schools wear uniform and you have to wear your hair in a certain type of style. And if you, you know, know some history about the U.S., that's exactly how they treated Native American people and um, Black Americans, too. And even like the way they kind of like treat women it's not not to say like the u.s really treats women any better but we've gotten a bit further than they have mm -hmm. but it all comes down to like the education system you can't begin to do better if you don't know better and that's a major problem and it goes into like government as well if your government's corrupt and they're not putting money into the education system then like you can't really have a nation of people that can begin to want to do better so mm -hmm. i kind of i do want to ask like how you got into track like what was your introduction to that it actually started in third grade when i lived in california and every year there was like an an, an annual like rotary track meet type thing and like all the schools around the area would be invited to compete and it was pretty low-key but like in third grade, like I would always compete against like older kids because they used to do it by like height and stuff yeah. like that. So I was always tallest in my class. So I always go against the older kids. Mm -hmm. And I did it for like two years in, the, in a row before like we moved to Texas. And that was kind of like my initial track into introduction. And I loved it because I love being faster than everyone. Mm -hmm. And I was always faster than the boys. So I was like, yeah, this is my thing. Like, oh, yeah. you know, it's pretty cool. I, I like that, that your experience was with that was better than mine because you know with the with the Pop Warner weight rules, I as a fourth grader was playing with seventh and eighth graders. Um, yeah, was that was getting, a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, I was ten, eleven, going up against twelve and thirteen year olds, and that that gap, like uh, like fucking Kobe is like shaving, like, and I'm getting my ass lit up by these guys. <laughs> Um, right. That, that made me uh, shy away from it a little bit. Um, but glad you had a better experience. When did you know you were like that? Like, like what? <laughs> like, like you could do something with it. Well, in third grade, I thought you know I was kind of like hot shit, you know. Mm -hmm. But then I went to Georgia. I lived in Georgia for some time, and I was running the two hundred, and it was like the first time I ran the two hundred ever in my life, and like. You know, I had a good 50 meter start. And then like, next thing I know, all the girls just, they dusted me, they mm. gassed me. It was really sad. And I didn't think I had it at that point. Mm. You know, I was like, I don't think I want to ever run again in my life. But then um, flash forward to like high school, probably my sophomore year in high school, when I start like running the times and like, running times that people I was training with like have been running but like 
was kind of new to the game and I was already catching up. I was like, hmm, maybe I should stick with this. And then, you know, the conversations of college and scholarships started coming up and I was like, okay, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm going to get in academically, but maybe sports, maybe tracks going to be my thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think sophomore year was when I really was like, okay, I can do something with this. Was it, was it coming from you or was it more the external where it's like, you know, you're hearing how great you are, like the potential you have, there's avenues for you and the opportunities to make this happen. Like, where did that come from? Like, I'm sure there was a passion, but. Yeah, it definitely started off as a passion my freshman year. Um, It was just something I was curious about, like, there, my coach, he was having like a, a meeting at like a different high school. And I had a couple of friends that were going to that meeting. And so I just tagged along just to see what's up with it. And like, he seemed like a cool guy, you know? And so I was like, okay, I'll just give it a shot. And then I ended up trying his club team. And like, I really liked it. I, I liked the the community. I liked being around other black people mm-hmm. in Spokane. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going with it. And then I guess once they saw my potential then it started like being something that they talked about but like at first it wasn't really like it wasn't like on the table flat out I just I needed some work before it started coming in but it was a little bit of myself like some passion and some some outside voices saying Mm -hmm. that yeah you can do something with this so yeah so I stuck with it was that validation you were receiving something that was there growing up or was that a new experience I think the validation was always there from like a young age so like for instance like in first grade second grade I was like always in gifted and talented the gifted and talented program of like every school I went to so I always had like adults telling me wow you're special you're so smart you know and then I was in like prep schools like in middle school and this and that and so I always had external validation but then you combine that with being like a quiet shy kid and also like a black girl and you kind of don't have the chance to form your own type of validation like you're already Mm -hmm. adhering to the system you're already getting you're already in the mold of what you're supposed to be and what adults like and so when you bring sports into that the validation still feels good you know Mm -hmm. so that's what that's just what you're used to so you keep going with it it's a rush like getting that like there was like for with playing football that was something I always loved like from from the start like my my mom will tell stories where like I was in the stroller learning how to talk and I would see like purple and uh, yellow flowers and I'd be like oh the huskies are playing the ducks and we're like man this baby's weird as shit um (laughs) but it is a it feels it really feels good being validated oh my god yeah and it's like (laughs) from especially being like a standout as a kid like I would meet parents friends and get introduced to coaches and that kind of thing from you know elementary school and it's always the comments like wow like 
you're so big, like you must be such an athlete, or they see me play, and they're telling me how great I am, and so it's always coming from external factors, and like as much as I wanted it for myself, like it was also that seeking external validation from other people, especially growing up as someone who like didn't love their appearance, and would would seek it out in other ways whether it was athletically or humor or art like tell me why you love me because i'm not sure if i do yeah i i feel that <laughs> Ooh, we're already touching on some subjects early on in the in the show mm-hmm. it's cool though cuz i can definitely relate to that it's interesting to see how that from such a young age, like, forms an identity built around just seeking that high of people telling me how great I am. Did you experience similar things like that? Yeah, um, I would say coming from an African household and, you know, the early part of my life, like, I was with a single mom, Like, I just wanted to be the person, like, you know, make her life easier and try to, like, get it done for my family and try to be that golden child, basically. And when you fall short of that, it's kind of like, because you have nothing else to really rely on other than, like, things people have been saying about you and to you, like, it it hurts really bad, you Mm -hmm. know? So I can definitely say, like, I've experienced those things. It's just culture, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and, I mean, and especially yeah. in, like, an American culture where your value is your accomplishments. And that was hammered home, like, growing up in my family. My dad, top three swimmer in the world, like 400 IM, Olympic level athlete. Mom was all Pac-10, three, four years at Oregon State. You grow up hearing stories about just like greatness and being interested in sports. And so you're like watching these, these greats, these like gods among other people in athletics. And then when it's at home too, it's like, okay, I want everyone to love me like that yeah what was it like for you when your track career ended gosh it was like well my track career ended twice so Mm -hmm. it ended at UW the first time because um the coach that recruited me he got fired so like all his recruits were dropped off the roster and I was one of his recruits and that was that was like a huge blow to me because like I said, I was doing club track before. So I had already competed at all these colleges against college athletes. Mm-hmm. And I've had times like next to their times. And it's like, I was in the slowest on the team. So I was like, why me out of everyone else, you know? And it was my freshman year of college too. And I had moved to Seattle and the weather in Seattle when it's raining, is just, it's gray all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I had got cut off the roster. I didn't know 
what the heck I was doing in Seattle. I knew I wasn't making any friends because, you know, it was just that bad. I wouldn't even leave my dorms most days. You know, I skipped meals. I It was so bad. And so that, it was it was different from how it happened the second time, like the feelings involved. Cause the first time you can kind of like, it was kind of like, okay, I'm in a place. I don't know anyone. The weather's terrible, whatever. It's just gloomy. It's not a good situation. I have to get out. There's a way out that first time. And the way out was that I got recruited by WSU as a walk-on. And I just had to stay there for half the quarter compete in the springtime. And the next year they probably give me a scholarship or whatever and then the second time my track career ended it was worse because it was my fault and it was something I had to deal with but I just felt like long story short I had let everyone down I you know I went to high school in a small town like I was like the person that made it out you yeah. know and that's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. on an 18 year old especially someone that wasn't like in the right state of mind prior to that, then you move into a new environment and then it's like, you fuck up again. It's like, now, like, who's going to give me grace this time? Like, I should have known better. I should have done better. But the thing is, I didn't know better because I didn't have anyone around me that knew what it would be like. Like, I'm a first-generation college student. Like, I couldn't explain to my mom like the pressure of like schoolwork and athletics and also like trying to make friends and drugs and trying to relieve that that so much feelings within you you know Mm -hmm. so I guess like when I got in trouble the second time and like you know my track career ended again it was just like what am I gonna do there's no there's nowhere to go there's nothing to do I remember after like my meeting with the head coach and like finding out there is like nothing else to do except being suspended for the rest of the season and knowing that like my parents couldn't afford to like keep me at WSU for the rest of the time and all that it was just so much shame I didn't want to go back home I didn't want to stay there either so I just that day I like wrote everyone in my family like my peace out letter pretty much and I had one friend I could talk to and we talked and I remember just laying there in that dorm room already like I knew how it was gonna go but I just ended up crying myself to sleep and just waking up the evening and going to a party with my friend and that's how it was. That's that was my coping. Oh my! And that God. was that. Thank you for sharing that. First of all, wow. And I'm I'm glad you're you're here. I uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I I'm glad I'm here too. I yeah. yeah I I get it and and been there as well. It's um like I know we've talked about it some before, but it's it is kind of wild to see like how many similarities were there with our experiences um going up through washington state from like smaller school where you know i'm one of 
three guys on my team who went on to go play college football. Um, the other two guys stopped me like pretty pretty soon into their careers, um, as well as having um, I lost one of my closest friends uh, the year before my senior year, um, who was committed to go play football at Utah State, and he was you know one of the the closest people to me, and got that pressure of like wanting to make it and what goes into that and everything so there was a lot of like carrying that pride of back home as well as like wanting to carry on a legacy and so when I go into Washington State and I'm rehabbing an injury from the start like I don't I was originally like supposed to go into fall camp and wasn't wasn't gonna go play right away but there was a a path, you know, red shirt, do that time, prove myself, and then I get in that next year and maybe get some some time. Um, and then the week I come back from that injury I was coming into school with, I tore my meniscus, and my girlfriend dumped me, and it was just, it was it was that loss of identity for the first time where football in her was like my whole life and it's like what am I doing now when I can't have either of that and it felt like it was one after the other at Washington State where you know I'd get a couple months in and then there would be something else I got sick for like a month or two um and like dropped 20 pounds like all the the injuries, like I had four surgeries in the last five years of my career, I just wasn't getting my my shot. I uh, got got buried in the depth chart, and you go in from everybody telling you how great you are, and having all that validation all the time, and not knowing how to give that to myself, to everybody here on this team is just as good as me and better. And so I'm not that guy anymore. And so the negative talk from college coaches really became my voice because I didn't know how to soothe myself. And when I got buried in the depth chart after my second year and had a season-ending shoulder injury... I decided to enter the transfer portal, take a chance on myself, and see if I can make this happen, like, forever, for however long my body lets me play football. It was, like, a big loss, you know. Had a lot of friends there. And then there's always been the system. There's always been the structure of, like, how to make it to where you want to go. Um. And then you're jumping out of the plane with no parachute. Okay. Well, after that break, uh, shout out Alsada. Thank you again for being back here like 15 minutes later. Um, there's always been a system. <laughs> there's always been an avenue and a 
semi-clear path on how to get to where you're going. And when you lose that identity of athletics, there's a feeling of being lost. What's this transition been like for you going from athlete to what am I doing? I feel like being in college in the first place is a whole lot of what am I doing, but without being an athlete, the what am I doing is a lot bigger, definitely. So I guess when I stopped doing track, I just, there was a whole lot of relief in the first place that like, okay, I'm not performing anymore. There's no speculation on what I do, like, how I just maneuvered in the world, you know? It was nice not having everyone looking at me for the first time ever. Felt terrible, but at the same time, it was like, okay. Don't have to filter those tweets anymore. Exactly, exactly. So that part of it felt, it was just relieving, but then there was also some guilt about being relieved about it because I was like, damn, like, I should probably be trying a lot harder to want it again. And with that kind of guilt going on, like I did try to get back into like athletics again. Like I even talked to the coach at the university I go to now and, you know, I had that opportunity, but then I have to sit back and like really think to myself, is that really something I saw myself doing? Was it really going to benefit me? Especially like knowing all I know about like the politics of being a student athlete if I wanted to say something or really make a difference, is that the place I wanted to be in to make that difference? So like, I had a lot to think about. And I think I began to kind of like heal and find my identity again by first giving myself grace. Like I had to realize I was young at the time. There's not a lot of people I can talk to about what I was going through, you know, like, coaches see your grades slipping and this and that and they tell you to go to a tutor and that's not enough and even if they were to like offer mental health services how many you know people or counselors in those type of institutions or even people of color or women of color there wasn't that like that person I can go to that would really understand like my background where I was coming from all the pressure I was going to. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just had to give myself grace and start moving forward from there. And then once I gave myself grace about the whole situation, I guess it was kind of easier to move forward. I, hold on, I wrote a note. So mm-hmm. after I gave myself grace, it kind of helped me like stop dwelling on the past as much, like what could have been like what I could have done better was it all my fault and I mean it kind of was my fault but besides that like I just had to get over that like yes I messed up there's nothing I can do and like if I did want to do to make a change you know I would have done it by now I would have tried harder by now and I didn't I wanted to do other things I wanted to form a different identity you know kind of go back to things before track before sports and stuff like that and that's kind of like what I started doing and I also had to like reevaluate the people around me like if you only really loved me because of my accomplishments then that's not real love at all you know Mm -hmm. and 
turned out like I thought my parents would be really mad at me all this and like sure they were upset at me but you know time went on and that eventually like blew over and like life continued and so it wasn't as I was a lot harder on myself than I thought everyone else was going to be on me it's kind of like the world kept moving whether I was an athlete or not and it was just up to me to realize that like I had to keep moving too I couldn't just you know keep thinking like oh I'm an athlete I'm an athlete like no Mm -hmm. like find find something else (laughs) get a life pretty much but and especially like I didn't want to be a husband either you know I didn't want like everything I've ever done all my accomplishments to just be like thrown out the window like I was still a smart person I still had my experiences from sports maybe I could still be involved in sports some way but maybe not as an athlete you know I had Mm -hmm. to start thinking about like other alternatives because the love of the sport is still there but maybe it's not going to manifest into like being like an Olympian maybe it'll manifest into like starting a school and being a track coach and giving other people opportunity so like I had to think had to start thinking bigger you know mm-hmm. uh, I had to I don't know there's a lot that went on like there's a lot of emotions over like the last couple of years even now it's like I'm still forming that new self-identity that that get a life part is what stood out there uh, among all the everything else you were saying which was fantastic um but there were like for me there was a lot of not having a life, especially like going into that transition with COVID. It's I'm locked in my room by myself and all I have around me is those thoughts of being a failure. And you start to linger. What I'm kind of curious on is like how much of a role self-talk played into that and what that shift was like I think because I couldn't afford therapy I still can't afford therapy a lot of it had to do with like self-talk pulling myself out of it every time and that also like the positive self-talk wasn't always there like I got there watching YouTube videos and trying to help myself being tired of like you know being tired of feeling how I was feeling being tired of like just lingering on the past when there's nothing really I could do now like I'm past my well I wouldn't say I'm past my window of like being an athlete but it's just like not something that I want to put my body through anymore Mm -hmm. and so like I had to I had to find a way to get over it or it was going to continue to eat me up from the inside and so part of it was watching youtube videos reading a lot i started reading a lot more i was like a really big reader when i was younger but it kind of went away in high school and college and stuff like that and you know i started reading books that helped me think differently i guess Mm -hmm. about my situation there's this book by zora neil thurston it's called the eyes were watching god in one of the par- in one of the chapters, she talks about there are some years that give you questions and some years that give you answers. 
involves having those negative self thoughts and trying to get out of it. Like I figure like, I don't have the answers, but maybe I should start doing things now that maybe, maybe if I plant these seeds, the answers might come along later, you know? Mm -hmm. So just doing little things like that, kind of like in hopes of like, okay, if I continue to do this little thing in the future, it might help me out. I don't know how, I don't know when, but it might. It, it doesn't all happen at once. Yeah. What, what were some of those seeds that you planted look like? Starting to write more about my feelings and writing more and kind of making that like a routine consistent. Like it helps me like kind of um think about why I feel a certain way about things. It really helped me get through like the whole not being a student athlete and you like why did I feel like that towards that like why was that such a huge loss and why I was having a, such a hard time like finding my way out of that and finding a new identity and kind of like going back to my roots and stuff like that everyone says like heal your inner child do this do that but like if you can't talk to yourself to really like get to the roots about what why you're feeling a certain way about your about how you're feeling like it's not gonna work and a lot of a lot of the time they just uh, people just throw those words out there like heal find your inner child this and that but it's really freaking hard to do so some of the seeds I started planting was just writing every day thinking about the thoughts I thought (laughs) reading more watching better content on social media doing less social media like tiny seeds like that I feel like kind of gave me the ability to even be on this podcast today to be talking to you about this stuff so I'm really glad you are here something that I picked up that really helped me was speaking to yourself like a loved one and and that was like holy shit what like I wouldn't talk to anyone the way I talk to myself. Like, no, no chance those those words are coming out of my mouth and I'm saying that to someone. And when I started to shift that, or um, I, was, I watched this uh, comedian who talked about going to therapy and he was, he was d- uh, on the topic of self-talk and he said, now I talk to myself the way an NBA player talks to the media. And he goes, people are saying you might be the worst person ever. Uh, and he goes, well, people are entitled to their opinions. And, and that, that shift is something that was just so crazy that I hadn't thought about before. What, what advice would I give to a loved one who's going through the same thing I am? Because I know I wouldn't talk to them like this. I'd like to hear more about uh, what what notes you got. Okay, well, I'm like looking through the pages right now <laughs> trying to find like something to say because I, I recently wrote a note that kind of went with like self-talk and all that stuff. And it was like on a YouTube video I was watching. If you're a smart person, it's really hard to 
argue against yourself because you already know all your best arguments and you already have your counter arguments for that. Mm. And sometimes all what you really need to do is <laughs> acknowledge that you're a pretty smart person and just go to sleep and let your thoughts just <laughs> lay to rest because you keep like arguing back and forth with yourself and it's not gonna really cause any peace because you've already convinced yourself otherwise so sometimes it's good to let those thoughts flow in and out and then if they can't just go to sleep and start your day in a new routine and this and that and that helped me a lot because when I was going through it I had a lot of negative thoughts and I had a, a lot of reasons to believe those negative thoughts but I also had a lot of counter reasons too and if I can't come to a conclusion within myself then I just need to acknowledge these are thoughts and if I stop thinking about them I'm gonna have new thoughts eventually and that's helped me a lot that oh so I found the page oh, okay I found the page <laughs> also holding myself accountable was pretty impactful because a lot of the times I found out that because I didn't have that good inner voice and I also did things to get outside validation sometimes when that validation wasn't there I would lie to myself about things I would say I would do and I didn't complete them and that also like it adds on to the feeling bad about yourself so holding myself accountable is tiring, but it's also rewarding because it's telling the truth to yourself and being honest and you owe yourself that honesty and you owe yourself to follow through with those things. So I thought that was pretty helpful in helping me come out of that slum. What is the narrative I am giving myself? That was um, Dr. Michael Gervais, uh, the sports psychologist for the Seahawks. And that's something like I really think about and that made me think about that quote. You're always going to tell yourself things that are going to make you feel better. This person did this. It's either I'm the hero or the victim in a situation. And I think on the topic of holding yourself accountable, when you're not actively thinking about that in a way you're almost manipulating yourself with with those lies or excuses as to why you're doing those things and that's something i think is so fascinating like you can get really comfortable in beating yourself up being the the victim and then also not taking accountability for your faults so I'm I'm glad yeah. you you brought that up because that was very um, that was powerful. But I appreciate it. But yeah, holding yourself accountable is like a huge thing, and it's a big thing to change because you know if you haven't held yourself accountable before with your feelings and your actions that you're taking, it feels like really cringy to change those things because you haven't necessarily like acknowledged that those things are. I guess wrong you haven't taken accountability for them so I think like a huge part of like that finding yourself identity is kind of like getting out of your old habits that hold you back and 
changing those habits it's cringy because they don't feel good because they're new you know mm. and that was a big thing for me finding new habits you know finding new ways to make myself feel good about other people validating me it felt weird because it was new mm-hmm. but it's needed getting comfortable being uncomfortable that's like yeah. and especially in like the the era where like everybody's becoming like the mental health professional online and like the positive self-talk and and all that like maybe not as much positive self-talk as like real self-talk yeah honest because the real is not it's not pretty all the time mm-hmm. at all well thank you I'm I'm really glad I got to have this conversation with you. I'm glad I got to have this conversation as well, finally. Finally. How can people reach you? Don't reach me. Don't, okay. don't know okay. I exist. Okay. <laughs> don't <laughs> no, perceive me. Yeah, right. Don't perceive me. No, I actually have to stop doing that. But you can follow my um, Instagram at alsata, which is A-L dot S-A-T-T-A. And... Yeah, that's the social media I probably interact with people on the most. So, yeah. Awesome. And I'll, I'll link that in the notes. Thank you again. Any closing statements? Yeah, just one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's a lot of athletes out there, and more specifically athletes of colors that come into collegiate sports with a lot of baggage, and there's not enough people helping them unpack that baggage and even more there's not enough people with the right tools or similar backgrounds as these athletes to even begin unpacking so I just think that I don't know the future of collegiate sports should probably put more emphasis and more money in having a more diverse group of counselors for these student athletes to reach out to because I feel like if I had that opportunity, maybe things would have gone differently. But as I'm sitting here now, I'm thankful things didn't go differently because I wouldn't have this opportunity to talk about it. So I guess that's all I have to say. Very well said. And I very much agree on the topic of representation and giving athletes that uh, opportunity to talk to someone who has a similar experience as them. You know, somebody like a comes from a like well-off white family, um, very well represented in collegiate athletics with other, um, you know, rich old white dudes um, usually getting a lot what I have to say. So I, I can't, imagine going through that where people don't understand what my life looks like or my thoughts but again thank you so much for being vulnerable with me and whoever listens to this and um i'm i'm gonna take notes on things you said um and i'd like i'd like to chat with you more i'm, I'm glad that we're we're getting to do this so just very grateful for you thank you thank you Bo and it was a pleasure being on your show and talking to you again
That was Alsada Bacana. Really great conversation there. Isn't she great? Her link to her Instagram will be in the show notes. Uh, special thank you to Dylan Scott for helping through a pretty brutal break in the content there um, and for making the theme music for the Bo Show or whatever this is called. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for all of you, or if it's just one, thanks, Mom. Um, love you. Peace.